Thanks, Rick and Carrie. Hi, everybody. Um, this is really strange to be here and to have three people out there live, and who knows how many people are joining us uh, online. Uh, if you have a Bible, and I would encourage you to get one. It's going to be kind of important this morning because I'm just going to be moving through an extended passage from the Gospel of John. So if you could find a Bible, move to John 11, John chapter 11. If you go to the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the first four books. They're the Gospels. They record the life and death and ministry of Jesus. And I'm going to be using John 11 as kind of the anchor point for today. Uh, I realized this Sunday, today, is uh, a strange, but it's also a special opportunity to share in a really formative experience in my life, which is the passing of my mom earlier this week. Um, Moving through that in the early days and moving towards Sunday um, was really awkward and strange. Pastors have a saying that uh, Sunday comes every seven days. And we often repeat that to each other out of recognition that no matter what's happening in life, in your own life, in the life of your congregation, what's happening in the lives of your loved ones, there is kind of a deliverable on the horizon. And that deliverable requires a certain amount of intentionality and prayer. And I'm sure as most of you can imagine, there just hasn't been the emotional and relational and logistical bandwidth this week to um, move into Sunday as I would regularly, and that's probably not even appropriate. But I would also admit that I don't really know how to move into this space faithfully. Um, There's this huge rupture in my own life, and now there's this call to simultaneously continue to lead the church forward and now lead us forward um, with new restrictions in terms of gathering. So there's new leadership that's required, but that has to happen concurrent with not just grief and grieving, but grief and grieving in sort of a public way, right? Like there's parts of my life that are private, and then when I speak on Sunday, it's not a performance. It's... um, There's a performative aspect to it. I prepare certain things, but I'm also sharing my heart and what has happened to me in the previous weeks and months informs how a pastor preaches and speaks. So that's where I find myself this morning is wondering how do you move into and through something like this, wanting to acknowledge what's happened, but at the same time uh, sort of decenter yourself and keep the focus on Jesus and his mission and his kingdom. So what I thought I'd do is I would th- I'd walk us through in a slow and intentional way a passage that I've been coming back to this week uh, several times, and that's John chapter 11. This is a pretty famous story. If you are familiar with Scripture, if you've been in church for a while, this is the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And I'd like to walk through it because I think it has a lot for me and for us as we move through this time. Because whenever there's a major rupture in our lives, whether it's something like grief and the death of a loved one, or it could be just a rupture of up until three or four days ago, we thought we were gonna be gathering here on Sunday morning, and now we're not. 
These ruptures are an opportunity to be still before God and to allow his word to challenge us in fresh ways and in new ways and in ways that um, we might not have been open to had those ruptures not, in a good way, kind of broken us enough to create some solid ground. So John chapter 11. Now a man named Lazarus was sick, and he was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. And this Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped her feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, and they said, Lord, the one who you love is sick. And when he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it's for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. If we pause there for a moment, that's, I think, worthy of our reflection. Scripture says he loved Martha, he loved Mary, he loved Lazarus. But upon hearing the news that Lazarus was sick, he stays where he was for two more days. And to me, if nothing else, I've been comforted in my own journey of grief so far with recognizing that um, just because we don't see and perceive God springing into action, operating from an urgency that, from our perspective, it would seem uh, very necessary for him to operate out of, that is in no way an indication of his lack of love, lack of uh, concern, his heart for the situation. We, We have to be careful not to confuse our perception of... Um, the lack of God doing things on our timeline with God not caring, especially as we move through times of rupture in our lives. So Jesus hears this news and he loves them, but he still holds back for two days. And then Jesus said to his disciples, verse 7, let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago the Jews there tried to stone you and you're going back? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by the world's light. It's when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. And after he said this, he went on to tell them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. And his disciples replied, Well, Lord, if he sleeps, then he'll get better. But Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought that he meant natural sleep. So then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. 
Again, I want to pause there and just thank my church family for the ways that you have been reaching out to me, the ways that you reached out to my mom over these last few weeks and months, and the way that you opened uh, your lives and hearts to her when she and Brian moved here um, yeah, just a little over a year ago. Um, it's really amazing to feel the outpouring of love, and our, our family does feel it, um, and it's a huge measure of comfort. And when you go through a rupture of a loved one's death, it's uh, something that you can't fully prepare for, but man, does, is it ever powerful to know that there are people who, even if they can't gather around you physically, like we can't during this time, to receive uh, the texts that I have and the emails and the flowers and different expressions of, of care and concern. Uh, it's really been really powerful and formative for me, and it's not going to be something that I, I soon forget, and I want to I thank you for that. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, verse 20, she went out to meet him. But Mary stayed at home. Verse 21, Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And I think that's one of the through lines for many people as they move through grief. That is the assertion that, um, that rises up if God would have been here, if God would have been doing something, if God was real, then this death wouldn't have occurred. This tragedy wouldn't have, have, have unfolded. This bad thing wouldn't have happened. It's a really human moment. And then Mary says, but I also know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. So there's this acknowledgement of this one side of despair that's mixed also with faith. And Jesus says to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha says, well, I, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. You know, she's saying, I understand. I, I understand the theological trajectory of everything. I know that at, after the judgment, God's going to raise those who have um, put their trust in him. So she thinks Jesus is offering that future hope. And Jesus says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? And she says, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God who is to come into the world. After she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. And when the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to mourn there. And when Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been there, my brother would not have died. Again, it's this repetition. God, if you were real, if you would have acted more quickly, if you wouldn't have stayed where you were, where, where you are, where, sorry, where you had been, then my brother would not have died. 
And when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and he was troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. And then Jesus wept in verse 35. To me, that's really, really powerful. Jesus has an agenda. He, he's told his disciples right from the start that this is happening so that God may be glorified and that so you'll see something that will allow you to more fully and more deeply put your faith in me. So Jesus knows the end game. He's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. But he allows himself to still feel the full weight of the loss. He looks around. He sees how this has impacted Mary and Martha. And he allows himself to enter into that rupture, that disconnection, that dislocation of this was my friend. And I think that's really important because sometimes Christians hesitate or hold grief at bay and we sort of try to bypass the grief because we jump right to, well, there's a resurrection coming, it's going to be awesome, they're in a better place, they're with the Lord. And all those things are true, but we see here Jesus modeling even when he knows and he's in complete control of what is going to be a good news end to this tragic story, he still allows himself space to weep and to be troubled in spirit because death is a monster. Death is anti-life. It's not what God intended for his creation. And I think that's powerful that in our grief, Jesus looks into our hearts, in the ruptures in our life, in the catastrophes, he doesn't look um, in, in kind of a, a detached, neutral way. He looks and he weeps. He walks with us and he understands. And the Jews, seeing Jesus react this way, they say, wow, see how he loved him. Look at how invested this Jesus was in this guy Lazarus. But one of them said, well, could not him who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Again, there's this subtle insinuation that if Jesus was powerful, if he was good, why wouldn't he have prevented this? If it was in his power to stop this, why hasn't he? Verse 38, Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. And he said, take away the stone. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there's going to be a really bad odor. He's been there for four days. And then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you have sent me. And when he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And then the dead man came out. His hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. And Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Take off the grave clothes. There's, there's an opportunity in the valley of the shadow of death to recognize 
that there is a way of living that is reflexive and mechanical. You're kind of sleepwalking through life. You're not really awake. You are moving through life with grave clothes on. You are settling into the status quo, leaning into the lowest common denominator. And when Jesus resurrects Lazarus, the command to those around him is take off the grave clothes. And the reason why he says that is pretty obvious, is because grave clothes belong on people who are dead. And Lazarus is no longer dead. So there's an incongruity it doesn't make sense anymore for Lazarus, who is alive, to continue to walk in grave clothes that are fit for someone who's dead. And there's a not-so-subtle reference here to one of the major themes in the New Testament, that before we yielded to Jesus, we were dead in our sins. We were under the power of sin and death. That was the animating factor in our lives. And we walked around with grave clothes. And then Jesus came along, and for me it was in, it was in grade nine. It was the spring of my grade nine year of high school. And for other people it's different times. And for other people it's an obvious event. And for other people it's a slower unfolding or progression. But we hear Jesus calling us out of death, out of a kingdom of darkness, out from that power, saying, Jeff, come out. Carrie, come out. Rick, come out. AJ, come out. You, come out. And then it's after that process that we begin to realize, I've got to take these grave clothes off. I've got to walk in a new kind of life. Because I'm not just following a good moral example, a, a skilled teacher. I'm following someone who not only proclaims himself to be, but then gives evidence to the fact that he is the resurrection and the life. And through his own resurrection establishes that all of his testimony is trustworthy and true. And that those who place their trust in him have the hope of heaven and beyond that, the hope of a new heavens and a new earth. Death is a unique opportunity for all of us to remember that our days are limited, right? Scripture talks about, there's a prayer of the psalmist who says God teaches us to number our days in the sense that we don't waste our life so that we walk with a focus and an alertness to the things that matter. In the New Testament, we're constantly being invited to take off the old self, right? The grave clothes and put on Christ. And in beginning to process my own mother's death, I realized this is an opportunity for me to be still before God and to say, God, I don't know how much time I have left. I want to pursue you with all my heart, but I need you to show me where I'm wearing grave clothes. I want to allow this rupture to be a catalyst towards greater faithfulness in you. Here are some words that are pretty fresh from my own processing. 
that are, I think, I hope they're, they're encouragements to you as it relates to taking off the grave clothes and hearing Jesus invite you to renewed life. I think one of the things that you <clears throat> need to commit to and that a death really helps you to focus on is what we've been repeating and reinforcing in 1 Corinthians 16, do everything in love in your relationships. We all know some of the, the truths that cycle around when someone dies. You don't know how much time you have left. You don't know when your last exchange is going to be the last exchange. And that doesn't mean that we have to avoid hard conversations or not move into tricky, difficult, messy situations and just always end with kind of a fake um, trying to buoy the relationship through um, superficial joy and happiness. But it does mean that we work hard in our relationships to maintain unity, to show love and care and deep concern, and to not avoid the difficult conversations. Do everything in love. Relationships lie at the heart of life and it's really important when we experience rupture in those relationships that we seek God seriously to say, what's on me? What, what can I do to bring healing and restoration to this relationship? To speak words of gentleness and love and care as much as it depends on me to live peaceably with others and to not presume that I have a year left, 10 more years, 50 more years, especially as it relates to the core relationships in our life. I think this time has also helped me to realize how important it is to pursue stillness in life. For some people, that's easier. For me, it's hard. I react to chaos and to uncertainty with trying to do more. That's where I get a lot of my sense of security by coming up with a new plan, new goals, actionable steps, move through them, structure my week, and God is really inviting me, I think, to pursue a different kind of healing and restoration and one that really only comes from slowing that reaction down and instead saying, let's do some deep work of deep prayer, reflection, journaling. And that, I'm early into that process in a lot of ways, but uh, I think that's really important. I think... Um, I know there's other reasons for it, but I think there's still a principle there that when Jesus hears that Lazarus is sick, there's not this immediate rush. Right? He stays there for two days. There's a, there's a process. There's a, there's a comfort with not just reacting and trying to fill these gaps, but to be still before God, to allow God to do something in us and through us. We take off the grave clothes as we allow God to renew and transform us through the renewing of our minds. That's Romans 12. And obviously I've been going into scripture this week and you read it very differently in light of the death of a loved one. Um, but that rupture opens up an opportunity to go into God's word and to receive from passages that might be familiar to us, like John 11, in a way that I, I just don't know if you can receive it the same way if there isn't that kind of wounding and hardship there. So we take off the grave clothes as we allow God's word to strip away the dross 
and to pull away and to unclothe us and to burn away that which is no longer congruent with our identity in Christ. And as we search God's word and meditate on it, the spirit through the word begins to clothe us with the character of Christ. And as we cooperate with the spirit and turn from sin and turn towards righteousness and real genuine love for God and seeking to serve our neighbors, then our lives overflow eventually with love and joy and peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. And the last thing that I think that I've been reflecting on is that part of what it means to take the grave clothes off and to hear the voice of Jesus who says, come out of the tomb, step out of that place of darkness, that place of death, and move into life is to sort of continually find ways to renew your commitment to serve and to give in ways that really glorify God and, and advance your neighbor's good. I think many of us understand how important serving is in the larger framework of the kingdom. And yet, as the calendar months kind of tick over, we can become settled in the way that we serve and give. We can become settled in the ways that we move through our life. And we become much more focused on executing our plan than being open and flexible and responsive to opportunities that God might open up around us. For me at least, and I know I'm kind of aspirational by nature, um, whenever there has been, whenever I've had to step into um, loss and grief, lead a funeral, walk beside those who have lost someone, and now as I sort of enter into that space in a really novel way in the light of my own mom's passing, it gets me to thinking about my legacy and the kind of legacy that I want to leave with my wife and my children and this church and, and just overall. And a huge part of that legacy is I want it to be said of me that I pursued God faithfully and that I gave and served to the glory of God. There was much about my mom's life which was uh, praiseworthy in which I and my family and extended family and her friends will celebrate in the days and weeks and months ahead. But I don't think there was anything more important to her than looking for ways to serve God and to advance God's kingdom. And she did that in a way that was different than me, but I learned from it. And she had challenges to that. And yet that was her, really her, her mission until the end. And that's given me a lot of inspiration and it's given me a lot of hope. And my prayer for myself and my prayer for all of us as we move through times of grief is that we would allow death to wake us up to the fact that the eternal things are the eternal things. Like there are just things that are more important than other uh, pursuits.
There are some investments that are just more important than other investments. There are some projects that are just more important than other projects. And that doesn't make some of those other projects not important. But death is a good smelling salt to make sure that we're investing in the primary things. So may we take this time to remember that relationships lie at the heart of life and to be generous with love. Um, Be slow to anger, slow to condemnation, quick to embrace each other, to pursue healing and restoration in the internal places in our lives, to lean on God's word and to grapple with God's word in a fresh way such that real transformation of our character and our perspective is... uh, becomes a reality in our lives, and then to hear the call of Jesus, the resurrection and the life, who says, come out of that place of darkness. Stop living with the grave clothes on. You have a new identity, you have a new mission, and you have a new hope. Even if you die, you will live. Eternal life starts right now in him. So turn to Jesus, receive life in his name, and begin living into the eternal hope that only he can offer. Let's pray.